Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Convincing, the show that looks at controversial criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, the home of Mardi Gras and the drive through daiquiri shop, and Michael Conahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, the birthplace of Sox Clinton, oh God, and Brown and Serve Rolls. Thank you for joining us for Episode 1, The Criminal Justice Process. This is a live show, and questions are always welcome. So call us at 347-989-1171. Good evening. I'm Lisa O'Brien. I'm going to be the host tonight, and I'm joined here by Michael Carnahan. Hi, Michael. You ready? Yeah, I'm pretty ready here to delve into this process. I'm pretty excited, but, you know, i got the perfect backdrop here in Little Rock. I don't know how the weather is there in New Orleans, but we got the perfect backdop. we got the rain. I'm waiting for a few claps of thunder, and we could just be like in one of them old P.I. movies. <laughs> oh, that would be cool. It's nice night here, so don't don't, no, don't spoil my luck. <laughs> definitely, definitely true. But how are you doing, Lisa? I mean, this is going to be the first of many, many shows. we got a pretty interesting docket coming up. You know, we're looking – Obviously, at Liddell Lee, I believe, is next week, and then we're going to go from there. I believe we're going to do Rodney Reed again, and uh, I don't have the schedule right in front of me, but I know eventually we're going to get to Casey Anthony and uh, O.J. Simpson. We've talked about coming up and doing the uh, murder of Selena, obviously, tonight. We talked about doing that somewhere in the March-April time frame. So a lot of, like I you know, said in the uh, short intro for this show, we're going to look at some of the most influential cases in American history from not necessarily the public perception point of view, but from the legal point of view, you being a um, – you being – and why is it totally escaping me what exactly your title is? 
paralegal, you being a paralegal and all the research and everything you do, you know, we're not necessarily going to be the most uh, public-friendly forum. We're definitely going to take the uh, legal side of things, but that's exactly what people need to learn, and that's exactly what you're going to learn, I believe, on this show is what constitutes a lot of things, and, you know, that's why we're having this introductory show here tonight. So we can kind of give everybody an uh, intro to you know, basic legal terminology, why, you know, and it will answer some of them questions, why things were allowed in court when they weren't allowed, you know, why they weren't allowed, right. you know, things like that. Right. And but I Lisa, think that go for the it. more information people have, the better able they are to form an opinion. When you form oh, an yeah. opinion with half of the information, that opinion isn't really going to be necessarily correct or accurate. Absolutely, something, absolutely. Something I see in discussion and debate of these criminal cases on the Internet is people who get very upset and very uh, anxious when courts don't rule the way they expect them to rule. Exactly. A lot of people, especially, you know, we looked at, I mentioned earlier, O.J., Casey, Two of the, you know, there were riots after O.J., and, you know, at the same time, people were saying they were going to riot if O.J. was found guilty. So, I mean, when you get these criminal trials, like we're going to look into some of these later, you see just all the controversy. But, Lisa, it looks like we actually already have our first caller here for Clear and Convincing. We're going to go ahead and bring him on live. We just asked, you know, that. Excuse me, the person dropped out. I guess we didn't get to him quick enough. But one thing I do oh. want to mention when you're calling in, uh, 347-989-1171, keep it clean, keep it civil, and we're here to discuss, obviously, you know, very serious matters and things of that nature as adults. So just remember, keep it clean, keep everything interesting, and let's try to learn something. Correct. If you, if you can't say it to your mother, don't say it here. Exactly. If you don't want your mother hearing what you're going to say, then don't say it on the airwaves. Very good. All right, so where do we want to start off? Well, Lisa, actually, you know, we look at this, and I'm seeing, you know, as we start out with the people, as far as just getting a start, as far as, you know, the beginning of the criminal justice process, obviously the first people you're going to encounter when you're entering this process, the police. You know, there's a lot of controversy surrounding today as far as the police force goes and, you know, things that they use that are particularly possibly legal, illegal, things like that. So, I mean, I think that's the perfect place to start off with. All right. Uh, So the police are charged with investigating crimes, enforcing laws in the state or jurisdiction, city, county, where they live. Uh, Most of the time they are members of that community, and they have as much of an interest in the community as the population that they interact with. Um, But we have to remember they're human. Uh, They make mistakes. They have fear. They have hopes. They have families who love them. And so, um, and they also are bound by certain laws 
constitutional sum and statute of how they have to do their jobs. And for the most part, they, they follow those to the best of their abilities. Um, one thing, though, that, that is funny is a lot of times they're blamed for the situation that the individual has gotten themselves into. If you watch uh, live PD or cops, occasionally you'll see, well, why do you have to do this to me? Don't do this to me. And they're just enforcing the law. You broke the law. Now you have the consequences. Right. I completely agree. I mean, a lot of people uh, talk about the police these days, and they say something like, you know, along the lines of, oh, this person planted evidence. Or, you know, one of the things I hear on a daily basis up at work, because of the people that we work with, you know, we work with individuals that sometimes get in trouble, things like that. We, I hear about, you know, individuals on a daily basis talking about, uh, I'm just going to be blunt about it, racist cops. Which, I mean, right. definitely, you live in the South, you're going to see that kind of thing. But, I mean, you're looking at individuals, you see cops, unfortunately, getting a reputation for stopping uh, stopping certain individuals because of the color of their skin, just saying, hey, by the way, your tire's flat, but while I got you here, why don't we run your information and stuff? So that's one thing I want to get into as far as the police go, because I kind of want to clear up a misconception on that or what I believe may be a misconception. When a police officer stops you, they have to follow, no matter whether it's, hey, your tail light's out, hey, something. They can't just say, hey, by the way, your tail light's out, just want to let you know, have a good day. Can they? They actually have to, at that point, run your information, so on and so forth, you know, while they got you there, correct? It, I believe, is generally discretionary. Um, so they could just pull you over, say, your tail light's out, get that taken care of have a nice day, and let you go on your way. I think sometimes it depends on when he walks up to your car, how do you treat him? Because as my grandmothers used to say, you always catch more flies with honey than vinegar. If you're nice, if you're polite, they'll cut you a break. If they have to run your plate and there's a problem, they might just give you a warning. If you have something uh, definitely illegal, like if your plate on your car does not belong to your car, they pretty much have to write you a citation for that. They may have to take the plate off the car. That's their duty under state law. But, again, I think a lot of times it depends on how you, how you interact with them. If you're nice, they might get you out of there more quickly than if you're Exactly, and, and another, that's one thing. I'm sorry. Another caveat is another caveat. If the officer is in a bad mood, being obnoxious to him is not going to make it better. And I personally turned an officer's bad mood around by being nice and polite and cooperative. Right, and I completely agree I, with that. He still wrote me the ticket. But I was nice, nice and cooperative, and by the end of our encounter, he was being nice to me. 
Well, so. and actually one of the funnier situations I can share a personal story about uh, I was just getting out of the Air Force. I had started a job delivering medical supplies for uh, the Veterans Administration to vets who were, you know, obviously in need of things like wheelchairs, hospital beds, things like that. And I was going out. Uh, I was going out on a random highway out in the country, and I didn't see the stop, the speed limit sign. And I was dumb. I think I was doing seventy and a fifty-five. And the cop pulls uh-huh. me over, and he's like do realize how fast you were going, right? And I said, yes, sir. I apologize. I didn't see a stop sign or a speed limit sign. And I was very polite to the gentleman. I've always been taught, you know, be polite, you know, so on and so forth. And the gentleman eventually, when he handed me my ticket, because he did write me a ticket, he was like, here's what I did for you. He said, because you were nice, he said, I wrote you for 10 over. He said, I actually clocked you at 20, and I could take your vehicle and take your license. But I'm not mm-hmm. going to because of how you handled this, and I appreciate right. that. But, you know, $180 later still for 10 over wasn't very much fun. But, I mean, it could have been I, a lot worse of a day if I would have been rude to the gentleman. I was lucky. I appeared three times in Marion before Judge Thorne. But luckily, each of those three times was separated by about three years. So I was able to uh, no contest my two equipment tickets and one speeding ticket. Right. Thank you, Judge Thorne, in Crittenden <laughs> County, and Mary in Crittenden County. So, <laughs> well, that's awesome. But, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, and it and you know the way I looked at it, it wasn't the officer's fault that I was speeding. That was all on me. Another thing while we're talking about this phase of the judicial system or the justice system, excuse me, uh, I want to speak about uh, when you get pulled over. Let's say I get pulled over and I just don't want somebody searching my vehicle. Mm-hmm. I believe the actual statement is you can tell them, hey, yeah, I don't want you to search my vehicle. But I believe, isn't it protocol at that point, they pull a dog out, and if that dog keys on something, which from what I understand, chances are they're going to key on something, they can enter that vehicle without a warrant. Anything in that vehicle automatically becomes searchable because they have probable cause, and they can pretty much tear that vehicle up and make make it hell on you, correct? Yes. Um and, you know, if they don't have a dog, because not all agencies have canines, what you do is you'll sit by the side of the road or they'll bring you to the station and tow your vehicle there, and then you'll wait for a warrant. Um, it's uh, You see it more in, like, high traffic areas like I-55 going up to uh, between New Orleans and Chicago, because that's a pipeline for drugs. And you see it on the I-10s going across the country, I-95s going from, um, I think, Miami up, you know, the eastern seaboard. Um, it's, you know, you have a right to deny consent. And if that's the case, then they have to they have to have probable cause excuse me, probable cause to get a warrant and do a search of the vehicle. But if they smell 
marijuana, if they can smell it, they know it's there, that's probable cause. Okay. Okay, and you know, uh, similar thing with like DWI, DUI type of thing. I we actually were discussing that the other day at work, and I, I realized that I wasn't exactly uh, up to date on that. Uh, if you refuse to take a sobriety test, let's say I refuse to blow in a, um, I forget what it's called, but the thing to check your sobriety. The breathalyzer. Uh, yeah, yeah, breathalyzer. If you refuse to submit to a breathalyzer. You're not charged with DWI, correct? You're at that point charged with DUI automatically right off the bat, which is basically the same thing, but semantic. My my understanding is actually some states say DUI, driving under the influence. Other states say DWI, driving while intoxicated. Refusing to take field sobriety testing or breathalyzers, usually results in an automatic suspension of your license. So you can't drive after that anyway. And right, officers right. will warn you if, you, if you refuse to take the breathalyzer, then your license is going to be suspended. They'll, in some states, I think in Louisiana, they actually, they will take your driver's license. And then you have to have the tar car towed or picked up. Uh, if if they can smell the odor of alcohol on you, they're probably going to arrest you, whether you're going to take testing or not. And then again, right, I was about to say they do warrant. arrest you, correct? They do arrest right. you though. Okay, they I just wanted to make sure. You because with a, an arrest, they don't they don't necessarily have to have a charge. Okay, I didn't know that. They can bring you into custody to continue investigating. And what they'll usually do is get a warrant to take blood and then analyze the blood. Okay, okay. Uh, and you refusing, know, re- refusing is not going to get you uh, sent on your way. It, it's right. only going to cause more headaches. Now, a criminal defense attorney would probably have a very different answer for that. Um, right, exactly. In my experience and my understanding, just as a citizen, you're better off if you if you have been drinking, be honest about it. But, you know, the easiest way to avoid that is if you drink, don't ever drive. Oh, yes, absolutely. We never want to advocate drinking and driving. Or and that, we don't want no. anybody to use this show as a way to get out of DWIs or no. DUIs. No. And I'm the first one to say, if you're if you're going to be drinking, leave your car and your keys at home, take a taxi, take an Uber, call a friend, call your mama. Anything you have to do not to operate a vehicle. Because the life that you take may not be yours. Absolutely, and that's the thing about it. You know, we were uh, sitting there, used to in the Air Force, our weekend safety briefing for the longest time was, if you're going to drink, have a plan. And, I mean, that's really what it boils down to. Always make sure you have a plan as far as that goes. And we're kind of getting off into a little bit of a uh, one of those uh, 
one of those uh, after-school specials here, but uh, I definitely, you know, want to get that out there. If you're drinking, have a plan. Make sure, you know, you don't go to jail because it's like that commercial says, to quote it, buzz driving even is drunk driving, and you're going to go to jail. So don't try to pull a fast one. But one of the first people you know you're going to meet, I guess it's at your uh, bond hearing, is going to be a prosecutor. So go ahead and give everybody an overview of a prosecutor, what their job is, and exactly what the criminal's, what the criminal's dialogue is going to be with that prosecutor. Well, there's generally, uh, if you have invoked your right to counsel while you're with the police, you're generally not going to have any contact one-on-one with a prosecutor. A prosecutor is an attorney who is employed by the local, county, or state jurisdiction. And they prosecute criminal cases arising within that jurisdiction. Uh, For example, the Crittenden County prosecutor. Florida, they're state attorneys. In New Orleans, they're district attorneys. There are different names, but it's the same function. The prosecutor decides what charges to file, if any. Uh, The prosecutor will, if there's a grand jury system, present the case to the grand jury and try to get an indictment. Uh, Or, again, a prosecutor can file an information. It's, It's difficult sometimes to speak generally because every place has a different procedure and a different name. Um, But you wouldn't have too much until probably at arraignment where you would plead guilty or not guilty. Uh, And then through the pretrial process, there may be plea negotiations where the charges are reduced so that you plead guilty and take a lighter sentence, suspended sentence to close the case. Um, But that's not a whole lot of interaction unless you represent yourself, which you can do, but you shouldn't. Right, right. And, yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of cases where people uh, decide, hey, I'm going to waive my right to an attorney and I'm going to defend myself. And uh, I'm pretty sure 99.9% of the time that doesn't work out too favorably for the defendant. You're going up against somebody who's college educated in this. Right. And even even people who have extraordinarily high IQs but have no training in the law are generally not successful. Right. But usually right. what will happen when when a defendant decides to represent themselves, uh, consulting counsel will be appointed by the court that can advise them and and uh, kind of be there to take up the reins if they decide they're in over their heads. I would agree with that. Now, Lisa, we actually have a listener here who's writing in our chat room. It's uh, Flycatch, and they actually made a statement that I want you to address here. It says, most politicians, and it does seem this way, are above the law since they also write them. I mean, I I would tend to agree, you know, especially here in Arkansas. You know, you look at, I believe it was Saline County recently, a judge was 
in a lot of hot water. A judge was in hot water for, I believe it was DWI. And, I mean, he's obviously had to step down since then. But what do you think about these, you know, people that are usually on the prosecution side of the uh, things that are, you know, turning into guys that are getting lighter sentences, things like that, in the criminal justice system? Because it does seem like certain individuals, if you're a prior cop, you're a prior, you know, prosecutor, so on and so forth, you do maybe get a lighter sentence or something like that. In my experience, that is kind of how the world works. Life's not fair. A fair is where you eat cotton candy and ride a Ferris wheel. Um, but, yeah, that is. But the way I see it, sometimes politicians believe that they're above the law. But for the most part, eventually it catches up to them. And they do have consequences. They go to prison. They are disgraced. They're drummed out of office. They can never run for office again, although they'll try. Um, so, and a DUI, the judge, what disgraces him more is probably how he handled the situation than the fact that he got a DUI. Right. Oh, I'm above the law. Do you know who I am? Yeah, I've seen that Correct. kind of thing happen Correct. before, too. Instead of saying, oh, my God, I can't believe I did this. It was a horrible lapse in judgment. I should not have done it. And, you know, I will I will face the consequences. But there's, it's right. human nature not to want to face consequences. I was about to say, and let's be honest, 90% of them are college-educated, very intelligent individuals, and if they were in their right mind, so to speak, you know, with DWIs and DUIs, obviously they're not, uh, they probably would be like, you know what, I acted like right. a, and excuse my language, but I acted like a complete asshole, you know what I'm uh-huh. saying? It's one of the situations where they probably kick themselves afterwards and say, hey, I just right. ruined my career. You know, sometimes people, when they're embarrassed about something, they get defensive. And so, Absolutely. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. They're human. Mm-hmm. Whether they're politics. I know most people think politicians are a subhuman species, but we don't have any scientific evidence to back that particular suspicion up. So, Absolutely, uh, they're and they're going to have the range, the same range of human reactions that you or I might have in the same or similar circumstances. I completely agree with that. Moving on, though, one of the first people you kind of want to see after maybe your bail bondsman or somebody that might bail you out, maybe a family member, is your defense attorney. After you're brought in and booked and everything, or, you know, even if you're still in the process of being arrested on the street, uh, what do you think about uh, that as far as that goes? Let us know about defense attorneys, and Flycatch has another question. We'll get uh, to that question right after we uh, talk about our defense attorneys here. Okay. Um, I think uh, a lot of defense attorneys, especially indigent defense attorneys, by and large, get a very bad rap in the public because 
they are blamed for a negative outcome that is not within their control. You can give someone the best representation. You can do everything that they want to do. You can call every witness they want you to call, but a jury is still going to convict them because the evidence against them is just too strong. So it really hurts me and upsets me when people say he was convicted because his attorneys were stupid or they didn't do their job or they didn't care. All of the criminal defense attorneys I've ever encountered through my 20-something years doing this, working in legal fields, they have been incredibly passionate. They care about their clients. They care about their rights. And they fight tooth and nail to protect them. Right. And let's be honest, you know, and I'm going to bring up another one that we're going to examine in greater detail later in the coming weeks. Uh a lot of people talked about Damien in the West Memphis three case and said that his uh, attorneys were incompetent in the first trial. And, you know, another thing though, that was broader worked. A lot of these defense attorneys you see aren't being paid and they're, you know, overworked because they work for so many different people because they work for the state. So they're court appointed attorneys. But here's the question Flycatch has He says, uh, do you have an opinion on the court system being modeled after British admiralty law? Walk into a courtroom today, and it resembles the poop deck of a 17th century warship. That actually varies from state to state, county to county. Uh, If you look on YouTube and look at the Dahlia DiPolito trial, I believe George Zimmerman's trial, those courtrooms are very modern, very stylish, very tasteful. Uh, none of them look like the poop deck of a British Admiralty vessel. Uh, you might find up in the Northeast some courtrooms that look like that because they said those buildings were probably originally built during the British, uh, the era in which this country was ruled by Britain. And so the right. courtrooms are going to look like admiralty vessels. But you've got to look at the materials used to build those courtrooms. You don't find that craftsmanship, the material, or the ability to do any of that now. So it would exactly. be to rip all that historic architecture and interior design out and install gray carpet on the walls for soundproofing and uh, cheap carpet on the floor and, you know, square benches and tables. and I mean, there's character in those old rooms. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, I mean... Moving right back along with our topic here, one of the things, you know, I believe that's still prevalent in the Northeast is they actually still wear them old uh, white wigs. I think that some of the uh, older, you know, up in the Northeast colonies may still wear those, the judges? No. The uh, United States judiciary, in no no court do they wear uh, white wigs. They do wear the robe. Um but they do not wear the white wigs. They they do wear those, I believe, in Australia 
and I think until a few years ago they wore them in Canada. Okay. But that was that was a status symbol because in the 18th and 19th century, being a a barrister or a solicitor was a very uh, prestigious position within society. And so they wanted everybody to know that they were a barrister or a solicitor. And so they had Absolutely. To, to I mean, if to, I was... If I was a judge, I might have something above the back. Of, I might be driving around in a big, nice truck with "judge" written on the back of my on the back of my vehicle, because I'd be like, "Yeah, I'm the man around here." I uh, I know some people that if they were judges, they wouldn't be wearing any pants under their robes because it was fun. <laughs> oh man, that's definitely true. But let's go ahead and discuss the judges, all joking aside. Let's go ahead and discuss a judge's position in this whole process. Obviously, the judge, you know, a lot of people I see get the misconception that the judge determines your guilt or innocence. Obviously, that's not true. That's actually our next uh, our next section's job. But in some cases, I guess, you know, in civil matters, things like that, you do, but in criminal matters, the judge really is just there almost like a referee in a sports contest. Am I correct? Correct. And um, actually, in some criminal cases, uh, it varies from state to state and jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Certain types of crimes, you can't elect to have a judge try you rather than a jury. Uh, the young woman in Massachusetts who was accused of... Uh, 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 orchestrating her or engineering her boyfriend's suicide, Michelle Carter. She had mm-hmm. a judge trial. Sometimes that is the wiser course because a judge is going to be more, uh, let's see, he's not going to be swayed by emotion. And he's going to look at the law and look at the facts and determine dispassionately whether or not the facts fit a conviction for the crime. Right, and rather than, you know, in certain cases, in most cases, I guess you could even say, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of cases with juries, it's kind of, hey, do I like this guy or do I not like this guy? You know, as much as they like to say we're going to, we want you to listen to all the evidence and so on and so forth, I believe that there is a lot of cases in juries where they're like, hey, I don't like this person. Yeah, I'm going to sentence them. Or, hey, that person's got a sweet face, and they're sweet as all. Get out. They couldn't possibly killed this person. Right. I um, I don't know that. I know there are, there are jury bias or prejudice is a common complaint in criminal uh Appeals, especially post-conviction claims, but for the most part, it's very rarely proven. And I think mm-hmm. most people do, if they are sworn onto a jury, whether it's a criminal trial or a civil trial, they usually, mostly, do try to decide based on the evidence presented to them in the courtroom and to not allow prejudices or or biases to infect their uh, decision. 
Absolutely, absolutely. There there have been some cases where a person who had a preconceived opinion got themselves onto a jury, but they got caught because their, their behavior on that jury made it obvious what what was happening. And I mean we kind of mixed up the juries and judge with the uh with the uh, with the introduction to both of them as far as the criminal process goes, but one question yeah. I have before we move on from both is uh does it really ma- does it really just matter where it is? But one of the things I noticed watching Paradise Lost uh about West Memphis 3 I believe that the judge was the one who sentenced Damien to death, uh, not the no. jury. Is no, that not that accurate? Correct. That is not correct. After okay. the uh, guilt-innocence phase of the Eccles and Baldwin trial concluded, the they had a penalty phase. Okay. And that was when Eccles' psychiatric records were admitted into evidence by his defense attorneys in an effort to save his life. Because if they could show that he had some mental illness, the jury was more likely to vote for life in prison. Right. Um, Now, I don't specifically recall whether there was actually a sentencing hearing for Baldwin or whether the jury convicted him and recommended a sentence of life in prison. I will research that before our West Memphis 3 show, however. But okay. Now, the jury heard all that evidence in the penalty phase, and then they did vote sentence him to death. And well, the judge and while merely, he merely, you know, went with the jury's sentence. Okay. Okay, and while we're on the case, I know as far as Arkansas goes, I remember listening to a case a couple years back. I forget what it even was. It may have been the one about the realtor who was murdered, but uh, they got through the court case, and it seems like, especially in death penalty cases, there's three phases, at least in Arkansas, that the jury has to decide. In each phase, for it to move on to the next phase before death penalty you have to have a unanimous yes, we want to continue this phase to potentially lead to the death penalty. Is that pretty much across the board you have like certain amount of phases and it has to be absolutely well, unanimous? I think more more common is the guilt and innocence phase where they determine whether or not the accused committed the crime. And then there's the penalty phase which determines whether the sentence is death or life in prison. Right. Uh, For example, if a person is charged with second-degree murder, then there's only going to be one phase, the guilt or innocence phase, because a Mm second-degree murder doesn't warrant a death sentence. Some states have a in-between the guilt and innocence and the penalty, they have a, a phase in which it's determined whether the crime was or whether there were aggravating factors was it cruel and heinous 
was the victim tortured? Were the victims under a certain age? I think it's the age of six. Were there multiple victims? Was it in connection with a felony or the commission of another felony? Uh, those are different aggravators, and, and they're all defined by the state. Uh, one state to the other, they may have some aggravators that are the same, but then uh, Arkansas may not have cruel and, and heinous. Okay. Because it's, okay. So it's, it's going to vary by state by state. I believe Arkansas, though, I know at the time of the Eccles Baldwin trial, it was two phases. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was I two. I apologize. I a third phase. In Arizona, there's, a, there's guilt and innocence. Then there's to determine if there are aggravators. If they find aggravators, then it goes on to the penalty phase where it's determined whether it's death sentence or life. Right. Right. And I apologize. It may have been two phases. I thought it was three, but I wasn't completely sure. But we do. That was a great question. Thank you very much, Lisa. It's just something, you know, that I've been meaning to ask since, you know, since I heard, you know, perfect occasion to ask. But Lisa, one, one thing I do next up, we obviously know the corrections phase as far as where it fits in the process. This is obviously after you've quote unquote been or even, you know, beforehand, I guess jail is part of the Department of Corrections. So go ahead and let us know what process the jail or prison plays in this process of uh, uh, the criminal justice process. Uh, the, the county or parish where I'm from, uh, the jail is where you're housed until you are convicted and you're ordered transferred to the State Department of Corrections. Mm-hmm. So the jail personnel are employed by the county in which you're being held. Uh, and different cases, I've seen cases where because of the notoriety of the crime or some connection to the county it happened in, a person might be held in another county pending trial. Um, I believe in in the West Memphis Three case, they were all held in different counties. All three, each of the three was held in a different county. So, but they um, were all the they were all tried in the same county, correct? In the same courtroom? No, um, the oh, case really? was Nestelis Clay County. And Eccles and Baldwin were moved to Craighead County in Jonesboro. Okay. Okay. I thought they were all three tried. I thought Eccles and – or not Eccles. I thought Missley and Baldwin were tried in the same trial. No. And a lot of people think they were all tried in Crittenden County in West Memphis. And that could not be further from the truth. Right. There's absolutely no way they could have gotten a fair trial in West Memphis. Well, I don't know that they, I don't know that they necessarily couldn't have gotten a fair trial. There are so many communities in that area, Earl and uh, uh, Marion, and I can't think of the names anymore. I used to know them. Yeah, Earl, uh, Marion, West Memphis. A lot of small towns, and then you got West Memphis, Memphis metro area. Correct. 
Um, but yeah, you're right. They they possibly could not have because West Memphis is kind of a small town, and uh, the families and people in West Memphis have connections all over that part of the that region. But right, and- see that the cases were all moved to different counties. I think part of it too, I believe, when watching West of Mi- or not West of Memphis, excuse me, uh, Paradise Lost. I think they said something about they knew it was going to be a media trial, so they had to move it. I believe the ones that were moved to Jonesboro because that courtroom was going to be better for the media or something more accessible. I'm not sure what I remember hearing, but I believe that was brought up too was the accessibility to the media. Well, no, as I understand it in reading the appeals and uh, the hearing transcripts, the conditions, the places to be tra- that a case can be transferred to in Arkansas, the counties have to be in the same judicial district. Okay. So if they were in a judicial district, two of the smallest, most backward counties, and then Crittenden County, they would have been stuck mm-hmm. in those two small backward counties, media, uh, media notwithstanding. But they were lucky in that they were in the judicial district that included Craighead, which is a college town, pretty metropolitan area. Right. And they did have right. courtroom facilities that you know could accommodate the added media attention, but. You know, from what I saw that's on the record, the media was never considered. And in fact, for a while, Baldwin's attorneys, Paul Ford and Robin Wadley, fought the presence of cameras in the courtroom. Really? Even the West or the Paradise Lost crew? Yes. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Um, or they may not have thought the crew being out and around, but they did not want them in the courtroom. And they weren't right. in the courtroom. They got the feed from whatever news agency was allowed to put their one camera in the courtroom. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And because... then I think they licensed the footage from that agency. I was about to say, I think I remember them using a lot of footage from the local news stations around during that. Um, Next up, you know, we really get into the process. Let's start out with the investigation, and let's mix up the investigation and the arrest. Obviously, you know, we're going to look. Obviously, we want to use some examples here. So let's use West Memphis again. Uh, The investigation is really... They're starting, obviously, you know, West Memphis, three of the bodies are discovered. So they start discovering, they start trying to figure out motives. They start interviewing people. Hey, do you know anything about this? So on and so uh-huh. forth. Am I correct? Go into a little bit correct. of the investigation. Correct. Uh, what they'll usually do in a murder case uh, is a good example. The body is evidence, and it goes to the medical examiner. And the medical examiner performs an autopsy, documents the injuries. Uh, he uh, tells you what the injuries are consistent with as far as a weapon, et cetera. Um, Then any evidence found on the body, uh, shoe prints, anything like that, they document that. The police also gather evidence from the crime scene. 
uh, things that they find around the body, if they find a weapon, and they have that processed by a crime lab. They also will interview people. They'll interview family members. They'll interview any witnesses. They'll interview the person who reported the crime, finding the body, whatever. Um, And I think something that people, a misconception people have is they think that the police should go to the scene and keep a blank slate until all that evidence tells them what happened. In my opinion, that's not really a realistic, uh, a, a realistic requirement. The minute you go to the scene, you have to start theorizing what you think may have happened because that's going to mm-hmm. tell you what to look for as far as evidence goes, uh, what to look for for witnesses. Mm-hmm. And if you go with a blank slate and it's just a blank body and you pick a bunch of things up and you send them off, when you get those results, it's not going to be telling you anything. So you right, have to have a right. theory that if what you, what you get back, you have to be able to uh, adapt that theory as you get new information. And I know there are probably some detectives who aren't good at the adapting, but generally a detective's work is a team. And so the guy that doesn't adapt well will have somebody that will say, he'll look at it and he'll say, you know, have you looked at this? Because this could be what happened, and they'll theorize. So, um, but that's, you eventually, hopefully you are able to identify a suspect. Right, and then, and then obviously, obviously, once you identify the suspect, and now there is multiple suspects, but once you identify the primary suspect, obviously, the next move is the arrest, correct? Where the interesting thing I have here in our little overview that I'm looking at, you have arrest listed, then charge. Now, in a murder case, do you not have to go to a grand jury and officially charge them to be able to arrest them for the murder, so to speak? It it actually varies from state to state. Um, usually a grand jury is not brought in. A grand jury can be brought in prior to an arrest, and it's the grand jury's indictment that, leads to the arrest but for example if you have a person who is a a vague description of a person seen running from where a dead body was just found and you locate him hiding in a dumpster and he's got blood on his clothing and he's got a knife in his pocket and you saw stab wounds on the victim or your uh, coroner's investigator saw stab wounds on the victim then you can arrest him on suspicion and okay. hold him for 48 hours. Okay. The DA can charge him, and then if the, if the state law requires formal indictment by a grand jury, you go to the grand jury process. You just okay. have to have probable cause to make the arrest. And okay, okay. Him in a, Finding someone who matches the description in a dumpster with blood on his clothing and a knife on his person would be probable cause. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's pretty 
you know, what you the picture you just described kind of sounds open and shut to me. Like the, yeah, I think we got the guy here. <laughs> There's a little bit of well, guilt and there. It, and and I, I, it's a, it's a, it's probably an oversimplification. But there's a chance he could not be the guy. You know, the blood may turn out to be his blood because the person who did the stabbing ran into him, stabbed him, knocked him out, threw him into the dumpster, and he was found after he woke up. True, true. I see your point there. The investigation will, you know, will determine if the blood doesn't belong to the victim and if he has a bump on his head. And a stab wound on his body, and his blood on the knife, and he he wasn't the guy. Okay, okay. But, now, continue. Oh no, no. I was. I, I. Sometimes I say, but when I'm done, I don't know why. Oh, okay. I apologize. <laughs> it's a purple. Well, pit. Lisa. Obviously, after you're charged and arrested, the first thing you see is you see your arraignment and your first appearance. But also, one thing I was going to ask, is the bail not set at that very first arraignment and first appearance? If there is bail? In some jurisdictions, it is. In other jurisdictions, it's not. Um, Okay. In some jurisdictions, you go... Enter your plea, guilty, not guilty, not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect, whatever uh, defenses are offered in your state. And then Mm -hmm. a a hearing may be set for a couple of days on bail. Uh, Sometimes it depends on the crime, and it depends on the jurisdiction. A first-degree murder case, Generally, is no bail, but you can uh, you can petition the court to give you bail because you're a special snowflake. <laughs> right, right. You know, <laughs> um, and and usually when there's bail, there also may be other conditions. You may have to wear an ankle monitor. You may have to stay within your house and not leave. Florida is a very liberal when it comes to pretrial and even appellate bond for their cases. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Florida seems like one of the, uh, one of the more stringent as far as when you do get bailed out, um, what you have to do, you have to be closely monitored, things like that. Same with California, I believe as well. Make sure you don't run for Mexico. (laughs) Right. Right. But, uh, Lisa, uh, next up, we have, obviously, uh, pretrial and discovery. But before we get there, one of the other questions I had about bail is when is bail uh, denied? Is it only denied in cases where the inmate or the accused is a flight risk? Or is there other extenuating circumstances that bail could be denied? It it. It's a discretionary decision on the part of the judge. In most states, though, some states say if you are charged with first-degree murder and you are eligible for the death penalty, you are not eligible for bail, don't ask, because the answer is always going to be no. Because facing bail is a guarantee that you will appear 
at future proceedings. If you are facing first-degree murder and the death penalty, it doesn't matter how much money you had to put up, the inclination is going to be to absent yourself from the jurisdiction so that you never face those charges. Actually, interesting thought here, because I don't remember. Uh, California, was OJ ever offered bail in that case? I do not recall. I do not think that he was. I think that there were a couple of applications, but he was facing two counts of first-degree murder, and the state was seeking the death penalty. Okay, so the state was seeking the death penalty. Yeah, he was held in Los Angeles County Jail for about a year. Maybe a little bit more than a year. Okay, wow, that's something. And, you know, once again, we're going to get into that more in a future episode, but that's something, you know, I never knew is how long exactly he was in there because I remember – Obviously, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have probably seen at this point the People versus O.J., and you saw how uh, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character portrayed O.J. as a guy who was always complaining, hey, when am I going to get out of here? I'm ready to go play golf with the guys or something like that. But, yeah, that's definitely something interesting. Uh, pre-trial and discovery. Uh, this is where I believe you're supposed to both sides kind of be like, hey, here's our evidence, and they allow each other to prepare for what's going to be thrown at them in court, correct? Correct, and it varies again. It's something that varies from state by state. Some states have laws that require reciprocal discovery, which means the prosecution has to provide its evidence to the defense, and identify its witnesses and allow the defense to interview witnesses and the the defense has to provide its evidence and witnesses to the state. There are some states where the defense does not have to do anything except perhaps identify expert witnesses. Well, and one one question I have to ask, because I just I can't wait because it's on my mind and I'll probably forget thanks to my ADHD. But you know, going back to OJ, one of the things I saw in People versus OJ was during the discovery phase, Cochran's team did not. Uh, did there was a I believe a witness that they were ready to call that they did not disclose to the prosecution. And the prosecution made a big, you know, fuss about it, but the judge ended up allowing it to go on anyway. Is that something like, why would you continue to allow that to happen if the prosecution did not get fair, a fair and equal shot to, you know, prepare for that person? I believe that you, even if you don't have to provide documents or or even what their testimony will be, or allow the state the opportunity to interview them, you still have to provide their names. Uh, Prior to trial, you file a witness and exhibit list. Mm -hmm. And that identifies your witnesses, who they are, gives their names, and any exhibits, documents, physical evidence that you plan to introduce. 
uh, that's not necessarily telling you what it is, but it's telling you that it's going to be there, if that makes any sense. Yeah, definitely, and I definitely. Think, I think, as I recall, they did not identify the witness. Was it the woman from El Salvador or Honduras? I believe it was. Yeah. What happened was they did not disclose her name on their witness list. And they claimed, well, we didn't put her on the witness list because we couldn't find her. And unfortunately, in a criminal trial, and this is something that people don't recognize, but it happens, the defense gets the benefit of the doubt much more often in situations like that than the prosecution does. And I know in the civil arena, our office filed a witness and exhibit list and then brought a witness in at trial that we hadn't disclosed to to the defendants in the civil case. The judge would have said, you should have disclosed them. Even well, if you absolutely. Locate them, you, their name should have been on a on the list. Um, well, absolutely. So and you I, think the defense would get some sort of advantage in that? And I don't mean to interrupt you, Lisa. I apologize, but you would I think know, that the I defense know. would get a little bit of an advantage in that, so to speak, because you know the uh, risk is a little bit higher for the defendant. You know what I'm saying? So I can kind of see why they, you know, get a little bit of a pass on that type of thing. No, I, I. I don't – I'm not criticizing that, um, but in most of the cases that I've followed, the uh, attitude is that the prosecution is the only side that ever gets any advantages. Right, right. And, yeah, definitely, you know, I'm glad you put that out there. It's actually the other way around. They can get away with little things like that. And it really was a huge advantage for the defense in O.J. Simpson because I don't believe the prosecutors had ever heard of her. They didn't know what she was going to say. They hadn't had any opportunity to talk to her or interview her. And I don't believe she'd ever, ever talked to police. I don't believe so either, and I actually – and actually the funniest thing about that is the defense the whole time had the smoking – you know, the smoking gun with Furman, and they were well prepared for him, but they didn't have a chance to prepare for one of the defense's biggest uh, witnesses. So, you know, it's one of, it's one of those situations where it sounds well, like somebody kind of got screwed over, but, you know, it is what it is. Well, the prosecution didn't have a chance to prepare. Correct. Right. The defense right. did. They were able to prepare on Furman. I mean, they found something that, wasn't even relevant, and yet they still got it before the jury. Absolutely, and that's something, you know, you look at, and we're going to talk about that in greater detail, just the genius yeah. of Johnny Cochran oh, as yeah. a I, as a juror, as a jury lawyer, being able to take this from an evidentiary trial to the LAPD's, the most racist organization in the United States. Correct, and genius. I have a lot of opinions on that case. Oh, yes, absolutely, and I can't uh, wait to get to that one. Michael, I'm going to tell you, install a seatbelt on your chair and then just buckle up and hold on. <laughs> 
Well, I can't wait because I have a feeling it's going to be a fascinating ride when we get to OJ and Casey Anthony. But, Lisa, we're pretty much at halftime here. When we come back, we're going to wrap up the criminal justice process on this first episode of Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and myself, Michael Carnahan. But we're going to take a quick commercial break. Going to throw a commercial out there for our title sponsor, Subbone Vapors. And when we come back, I'm also going to give you a rundown of what to expect in the coming week as we have a week of debuts here on Talk Radio 49. Lots of new content coming your way. We'll be right back with more Claire and Convincing. Are you looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories? Then check out the guys at Sub Ohm Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Subone Vapors located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas. Want to see you? Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. But more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Subone Vapors. Vape it like you built it. Yeah, and... We are back here on criminal, uh, crim- the criminal justice process. Excuse me, clear and convincing is the name of the show. This Michael Carnahan obviously joined by Lisa O'Brien, our host for this uh, wonderful show here on Talk Radio 49. But I mentioned it earlier, this is going to be a show of debut, or this is going to be a week of debuts here on Talk Radio 49. As starting tomorrow, we will, you know, obviously have the return of Mike and Mike at night. We've been on about a two-week sabbatical, uh, been a little bit, having a little bit of technical difficulties with the Mike and Mike show, but we're going to be back and better than ever tomorrow night talking about everything sports. If it happens in sports, it happens right there on Mike and Mike. Obviously, the night after that, Thursday night, the return of ASWF Aftermath as we get ready for this Saturday night's action live from the Valiant Arena right here on Talk Radio 49. As we get ready, everything, we're going to have the infamous one, Double J, in studio. We're going to have both commissioners of the ASWF, Bad Brad Hicks and Joey Britt, going to be in studio with us. And you never know who might show up to come in and talk about their matchups coming up Saturday. Speaking of Saturday, once again, ASWF Saturday night, every other Saturday, emanating live from the Valiant Arena right here on Talk Radio 49, the hottest wrestling action in the Mid-South. This is your home for it. Sunday night, we got Micah Qualls and Sean Castleberry bringing you on the reel. It's going to be a little bit of a political show, you know, from the left side of things, the more liberal point of view as that being Sean Castleberry and Micah Qualls with Unreal. And obviously, you heard it last night, our fabulous fabulous host, Lisa O'Brien, co-hosting Behind the Curtain with our own Brad Hicks every other Monday night. Obviously, we're going to get a special episode this Monday night for the boys on the tracks, the Mina Connection, coming up this Monday night. Can't wait to be doing that one this Monday night. But, Lisa, we're going to get right back into it. But let us know right off the bat, what do you think about this whole, uh, in your research, because we know you're a research junkie, what you what have you thought so far about this topic this Monday night as far as the boys on the track from a legal perspective? It's been a few years since I researched it. Um, the depth and breadth of the conspiracies are mind-boggling. 
but it's really disheartening that there's no evidence and everybody who wants to come forward ends up dead. Right, right, exactly. It's one of those situations, kind of like we talked about Biggie and Tupac and the murders a couple weeks ago on The Pulse, the last episode of The Pulse. It's one of those deals where nobody wants to come forward or say anything because you might end up whacked. So, Lisa, we might have to have you and Brad start wearing bulletproof vests after this show coming up on Monday. (laughs) The Clintons may be coming after you. I I think Brad does. I think those people are getting up there in their 60s, 70s, 80s, so I ain't scared. (laughs) I think it was Brad the other day said, hey, if I end up dead, trust me, it wasn't suicide. (laughs) But Lisa, obviously, we're going to get back into it here. The topic at hand tonight, the criminal justice process And before we went to break there, we were talking about free trial and discovery, and we were talking about some of the uh, most famous instances of the defense or the prosecution kind of, you know, sweeping something under the rug and there being a few surprises thrown out there during trial. But let's go ahead and get into it. Probably the most time-staking part of the uh, criminal justice process, and you can agree or disagree with me on that. I'm not sure but is the actual trial, and it all begins with the prosecution's opening statement. And when I think of the prosecution's opening statement, the thing I think of is, hey, we're going to outline how exactly we're going to prove to you step-by-step in an easy-to-follow for the jury who's not legally savvy, an easy-to-follow way that we're going to show you how this person committed this crime. Am I correct? Am I off-base? How's that work, Lisa? Now, you missed a step of Wadir, which is choosing the jury for the trial. Okay. Okay. I certainly apologize. (laughs) And that is a process in and of itself. Uh, A pool of people are brought in as potential jurors. They're interviewed by the judge. Both sides get to ask questions. And then each side determines who they want to serve on the jury. Uh, if a person comes in and says, I believe anybody arrested is guilty, I, I am prejudiced against other races, I believe every crime should be eligible for the death, those people are usually thrown off the jury in what's called a challenge for cause, which basically means there's something about them that they're not going to serve effectively as a juror. Sometimes it's, I have a medical issue. I have to eat every hour. I have young children. I have a job that I'm not going to be making money while I'm here. So those different things that might impede their ability to serve are taken into account, and they are dismissed, and they're not on the jury. And then there are peremptory challenges, which is where they uh, don't have anything that really is a challenge for cause, but one side or the other, based on their answers to questions, doesn't believe that they really should be on the jury. Uh, For example, if they say in a death penalty case, uh, if they say in one place I could never sentence anybody to death, but then in another place I could follow the law, then you might not want them on your jury. 
Absolutely. Um, as a prosecutor. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I mean, just the same, you know, you might see a defense attorney get ticked off at somebody for saying that they didn't like something about, you know, that might run true about their client. You know, uh, for example, I'm a racist individual, you know, obviously you're going to want that person thrown out. One of of the first questions that you're asked in the jury pool when you first come into the courtroom is, do you know the defendant? Do you know the judge? Do you know any of the attorneys? Do you know any of the family members? Did you know the victim? And if you answer yes to any one of those questions, you are challenged for cause. You're not going to be on the jury. And How that's I, an issue that's going to that's going to come up in Liddell Lee next week. Okay, Liddell, that's an interesting one. But how was that not an issue in OJ? Everybody knows OJ. There are some. Uh, there are you. You have to have a personal relationship. Do you know him? Did you go to school with him? Did you work with him? Is he your mailman? Is he your UPS guy? Does he deliver your water, your coffee? Uh, so if it's you know, a celebrity, you can't be like, "Hey, I watched him on TV." Correct. No, that's not being a celebrity. Uh, because if if that were the case. Where would they have found 12 people, let alone, I think their jury was, uh, their pool was in the 20s. Yeah. So, there was, there was quite trial, a few. You, you would have never found 12 jurors that had no idea who O.J. Simpson was. Absolutely. That's so. exactly what I was about to ask. I was like, how did they even find one person, let alone 12? But now that definitely right. makes a little bit more sense. Right. And I believe there was one person who had had some kind of interaction with O.J. Simpson prior to the murders mm-hmm. and didn't disclose it. And then a picture was discovered at some point during the during the trial, and he was dismissed from the jury. Yep, I remember that. I remember that being depicted for sure in the uh, People versus O.J., but, uh, you know, that's one of the more important things is making sure, you know, because that's what it's all about whenever you're a defense or a prosecuting attorney is you're wanting to make this jury up of exactly who you want it to be. You know, you right. watched it uh, in that TV, in the TV show. You saw them trying to finagle this jury. Hey, you know, this group of this group of individuals, you know, will say elderly white women don't like OJ. But then the defense was like, hey, we like our, uh, we like our, um, you know, city, uh, city ethnic people, you know, for being in the jury because they're more sympathetic, you know, and it's kind of crazy how it's almost like a uh, a sports draft, so to speak, you know, hey, this person's going to play well. I want this person for sure on the jury and we can get rid of this person. Correct. And jurors whom the prosecution thought were good jurors turned out not to be good jurors. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, that's one of the crazier things about it. It's it, it, it's a crapshoot. You have to kind of rely on instinct. But sometimes you're just wrong. And that's oh, know, yeah. human nature. Oh, yeah. And everybody's 
everybody's allowed to be wrong once or twice in their life. I mean, I know I have been a few times. <laughs> but I believe now that we've selected our jury, we're ready for the opening statement. So let's go ahead and talk about the opening statement, Lisa. Okay. Uh, the opening statement is a roadmap of the case for either side. Um, the prosecution lays out how the crime, what the crime was, how it occurred, and then a roadmap of what they are going to show to ultimately lead the jury to the conclusion that the defendant or the accused is the person who committed the crime. Right, uh, right. Sometimes after the prosecution opens, the defense will also do their opening. In some states, however, the defense can reserve its opening until they present their case. And that's sometimes a helpful thing to do because then you can lay out that same roadmap of your case right before you put on your evidence rather than laying it out days before and having the prosecution's case sandwiched in between. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the way this is laid out, you have uh, our overview, you have prosecution, examinations of witnesses, entry evidence, and then you have the defense opening statement, explanation of witnesses, entry of evidence, and then they rest. I feel like that would almost be a be a – be a very good thing for the defense because they get to make the last impression in the uh, in the jury's mindset before that's they actually, walk into the jury. That's actually room. not correct because the prosecution gets in most states the prosecution gets a rebuttal. Okay. So the, okay. the direct is the prosecution examining its witnesses. The defense cross-examines those witnesses, and then after that, each witness has been presented and cross-examined, then the prosecution rests. The defense, they have direct examination of their witnesses, prosecution cross-examination. They finish presenting their case, and they rest. The prosecution gets a rebuttal because the prosecution bears the burden of proof. Right. And so they get to they get to bring in witnesses to counter evidence put on by the the defense. Yeah, definitely. And, to and I mean, their case. getting into both of these, you know, the actual meat and potatoes of the of a jury trial, this uh, examination, cross examination. Does every piece of evidence in a trial have a witness to go along with it? Or is there ever a case where they're just like, hey, look at this bloody glove and just look at it. There's nobody here to talk about it besides me. Mm, well, the, usually to enter any kind of evidence, it has to be authenticated by someone. Uh, it has to be authenticated by a crime scene tech who says, yes, I collected that piece of evidence from the ground under the tree next to the body. Right. Um, and then the any testing of that evidence would come in through the analyst who performed the testing. Okay. Okay. So it, and... it's going to have, um, you know, again, it's, it's kind of going to vary. Sometimes personal items belonging to the victim 
would be identified by a family member who would know those items and be able to say, yes, that is my daughter's phone, uh, that is my daughter's car keys, et cetera. So, and I'm not, obviously, you know, I don't want to belittle the process, but, you know, I'm going to make another sports reference. Is the game, so to speak, here of a jury trial when you, uh, the defense, for example, calls a witness? Is it the prosecution's job then to discredit that witness and make them null and void whenever they cross-examine and then vice versa? Is that basically well, the game you play? Hey, I'm going to discredit your person, and then I'm going to bring this person, and you have to try to discredit them? That is it's a little simple, uh, simplified. Um, to some degree, it's not necessarily discrediting the witness, but perhaps discrediting, discounting the information that they report. For example, an alibi witness who comes in and says, I was with the defendant when this crime was committed, and on cross-examination, what time were you with the defendant? And they say 8 to 10. And the prosecutor will say, well, the murder was committed at midnight. Were you with mm-hmm. the defendant at that time? No. It's more about the information, not necessarily about the person. Okay. Or more about the testimony rather than the person. Some people you get, you know, unfortunately, it is about discrediting them. If a person has a long history of criminal convictions for fraud, theft, Crimes that involve a lack of morals or a propensity for lying or fabrication, then yeah, you are you're discrediting that witness. But for the most part, it's more about if even if you don't discredit it, diminishing its impact or weight. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. For example, the alibi, you know, Mm -hmm. on on the example I gave, that witness's alibi testimony is now of no use because it's for a time that does not involve the time the murder was committed. Oh, wow. So you can literally discredit an alibi just by discrediting a witness. Like well, let's say you're not, even, you're not even really discrediting the witness. The witness may think the crime occurred between eight and ten because that's what the defendant told them. Okay, so let's say the defendant says, "Hey, I was with Billy Bob drinking beer at eight o'clock, so I couldn't have committed this murder." And mm-hmm. the he his defense calls Billy Bob, and Billy Bob says, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, we were drinking beer that night." And then the prosecution comes back and says. So you were with him from the hours of 8 to 10. If Billy Bob says, no, I wasn't with him from that from 8 to 10, it may have been later in the night, then automatically right. that alibi goes out the uh, door. So would that be something right. that would happen potentially? It, it is, and it has happened. Uh, Miss Kelly, Jesse McKelly's case is a, a prime example. He had all these witnesses that came in and said they were wrestling, uh, that he couldn't have committed the murder because he was in, uh, I can't remember the town he was in now, Dice, wrestling. Yeah, Dice. And one person said, I know it was that night because I signed a contract for the ring. 
The prosecutor produced the contract for the ring, and it was for the week before the murders. Oh, wow. And, I mean, I so, don't think necessarily this person probably lied out of, you know, no, no. love for Miss Kelly. I, I, I he may have just misremembered. Occasionally, in some cases, I think witnesses are deliberately lying because they have sympathy for the defendant and they don't want to see the defendant executed. But in right. in Miss Kelly's case, I think people really were trying to help him and believed that they were with him when the murder occurred. And it may have been their misunderstanding of when the murder occurred. Well, and that's actually something I want to bring up. Lying on the witness stand is obviously considered perjury, and it's punishable. Correct. How often is perjury actually punished? Because, like, for example, Furman. Furman obviously lied on the witness stand and said he never made certain derogatory statements, and it comes out that he did. I don't believe Furman was ever prosecuted for perjury. How often are you actually as witnesses prosecuted for perjury? Actually, Furman, I believe, was charged with perjury. Okay. And okay, well, that's did, nice to me. I, I, I'll do the research on that again, but off the top of my head, mm-hmm. he was charged because that tape came out. Okay. And uh, I I don't know if it was necessarily perjury, but he pled guilty and his career with LAPD ended. Oh yeah, and I mean I'll, let's be I'll honest, that no offense, to, no offense to anybody who's ever lied on the witness stand or anything, because this is not why I'm about to say this. But let's be honest, Furman probably didn't need to be an LAPD officer anyway after some of the statements he made. I you know I don't I. I've actually listened to that tape, and it sounds like a dumbass bragging. Right. Oh, yeah, definitely. A lot of arrogance in that tape. I don't know. You know, he had an encounter with O.J. Simpson. Nicole was beat to crap, pregnant, and he didn't arrest O.J. Simpson on the spot. Right. He let Nicole go back in the house with O.J. Now, if he were a racist and he were out to get black people and he hated them so much, why is he letting O.J. Simpson go on back in the house with his beat-to-hell white wife? Very true, very true. And that's one thing I do want to get into when we do discuss that yeah. case more in depth coming up yeah. is – what exactly we felt were mistakes, what's blown out of proportion as far as quote-unquote mm-hmm. mistakes made by either side, and so on and so forth. That's something I'm definitely going to look forward to getting into with you as far as what you, how you feel from the legal perspective, what type of fumbles the prosecution made and things like that. But, we, you know, uh, obviously we got to where everybody's uh, given their rest and their closing statements and everything, uh, now we get to the jurors' instructions and uh, the deliberation phase. So obviously, I believe in this pretty much self-explanatory. The judge looks at the jury and says, "Hey, you know what you're supposed to do." Well, I guess he actually lays it no. out. But in it, layman's terms, no, let me let me explain. 
Uh-huh. The judge will confer with both attorneys for jury instructions and or jury charges. Some states have different names. And that is basically the law the law governing the charges against the defendant, evidentiary law. Um, uh, I can't think of any of the other things. I mean, it's sometimes jury charge or jury instruction phase can take an hour and a half or two hours because the judge reads the law to the jury. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it's not, you know what to do, go ahead and do it. It's a very long process. Okay. And okay. So basically, does he read the law that, does he read to the, to the jury the law that the defender, quote unquote, is accused of uh, being, of breaking? Like, let's say OJ, does he read the law in the state of California for murder? First degree murder? Uh uh, any other criminal charges? You know, I, let's see. Casey, Casey Anthony is a good example. Okay. Because she had multiple things. She had murder. I believe there was manslaughter. There was negligent homicide. There was lying to the police. There might have been a tampering with evidence. So he would re- read the charges as to all five of those charges. Mm-hmm. The law on all five of those charges. And then there are evidentiary ones. Defining reasonable doubt, uh, defining probative evidence, defining relevance, uh, defining um, – I'm going to have to look at jury charges mm-hmm. at work to tell you. I mean, it's it's – in civil cases, I've seen 20 pages of jury charges. Oh, Wow. So I can only imagine what it looks like on some of these bigger criminal right, cases. Right. Uh, you know what? Uh, we've got the WordPress page, the blog. Uh-huh. I am going to post a link to a video from Dahlia DiPolito's case mm-hmm. where the judge read the jury instructions and charges to to the jury in that case mm-hmm. so that people can watch a few minutes of it and get an idea. Okay, uh, awesome. And yeah, if you'll shoot me that link charges. in the uh in yeah. the Facebook Messenger, I'll go ahead and post that as well on our Facebook page, Facebook slash or Facebook dot com slash talk radio forty nine and we'll post right. that up there as well. And I, I sent you the link to the to the blog to the WordPress page. So you can post that on our, our Facebook link as well. And we'll of have course, things of course. before the shows that I you know, that we're putting up. And then after the shows, we can put up documents and links and, and things of that nature. Yeah, definitely, because definitely. I'm, That's going to be a great resource. I'm a big believer in giving people an opportunity to read things and make a decision for themselves. Right, and right, I obviously. I don't like it when people tell me, this is what the document says. You don't need to read it because I'm telling you what it says. So, yeah, uh, that is kind so of we'll shit. That'll be something we'll have. Yeah, definitely. And I definitely think that's great. That'll be a good resource for somebody to come in and, you know, be a little bit more informed if you don't know about, say, Black Dahlia, which we're going to cover, or uh, OJ, or, you know, uh, Casey Anthony, Liddell Lee, 
in any of those. Uh, if you don't know a lot about it, then you can. You can go to our uh, website, our WordPress, and, uh, you know, read up on some of the information that we're going to be discussing or just, you know, be able to figure out some of the technical terms we're talking about. It'd be a very good uh, listening guide for our viewers. But, uh, yeah. you know, obviously after the instructions or the charge, we go into deliberation. Now, I have a question. Exactly, and it may it may vary from state to state, is it ever a situation where you've got to come unanimous, or is there a certain number that you have to come back with? Does it exactly have to be just one vote above 50-50? How's that work? It depends. Again, that's something that's going to vary from state to state. In Louisiana, uh, it doesn't have to be unanimous but it has to be a majority, and I'm not sure of the exact numbers. Uh, But I will, for next week, I will look that up and and tell you. In most Mm -hmm. states, it is unanimous if it's a felony. Uh, Okay. If it's not unanimous, it's a hung jury, mistrial, and everything begins again. Uh, In some states in Florida... It's six people unless it's a capital crime. And then it has to be 12. Well, uh, and see that. Juries are 12. But it does, for the most part, with serious felonies like first degree murder, second degree murder, it has to be unanimous and it has to be 12. Okay. And see, that was one thing that. Uh that uh, I did notice in, once again, using OJ, uh, apparently the prosecution was kind of hoping for a hung jury so they could get the reset button there at the end? You know, do you remember that? I I have read both Marsha Clark and Christopher Darden's books. Mm hmm And as I recall, they were actually both blindsided by the acquittal. Right, and I mean, I, so, so was I. I, I don't obviously. think they were hoping for a hung jury. That may have been a dramatic license taken by the producers or the writers okay. of American Crime Story. But based on what I read in their books, they were both expecting a they were expecting a conviction or at worst a mistrial. Okay. Okay. And yeah, I do. Re- I do remember for sure. By the I do remember for sure seeing uh, Johnny, or the guy who played Johnny's face. Uh, whenever you know they said, "Hey, the jury's already back." Actually, everybody that they showed was like, "What already?" Because people Correct. were talking about you know taking vacations, and you know they didn't expect it to come back for like two, three weeks. You know, and Correct. it took what four Correct. or five hours, I believe. That's correct. And that is generally a good sign. That is generally a good sign for the prosecution. Yeah, you you would think so. I mean, obviously, you'd think, hey, obviously something worked out here. The jury went in, and they didn't have to deliberate over the evidence to try to convince somebody that this person was innocent. So, you know, you would. You would go in there. If I'm a prosecutor, I'd go in there with all the arrogance in the world thinking, hey, I just knocked this sucker out the park. Well, you know, I've seen defense attorneys who believe that as well. 
mm-hmm. and their client was convicted. As I well, recall, in Dahlia DiPolito, Greg Rosenfeld and Brian Claypool were very smug and very convinced that their little, the police framed our client shtick had worked. And when the jury came back 45 minutes later and she was convicted, uh, I thought Greg Rosenfeld was going to throw up. Because they thought they had pulled the wool over the jury's eyes. Right, right. And, you know, actually in uh, in Paradise Lost, I remember the scene, uh, I believe it was Baldwin and his uh, Baldwin and his uh, defense team was actually sitting there talking about what they were going to do when he got off. Now, maybe that was just them trying to talk themselves up and they really were nervous, but uh, it seemed like they were a little bit confident that uh, Baldwin was about to get acquitted. Correct. And they, you know, there was there was very, very little evidence against Baldwin. Um, because they were smart. They did not try putting on alibi witnesses who were going to fall apart under cross-examination the way Miss Kelly's did and the way Eccles did. And they really just hammered on reasonable doubt for Baldwin. So, Absolutely. You know, but you you don't know what a jury's going to do. And obviously after the verdict, if there's an acquittal, it ends everything right there. The person goes home, you know, not necessarily Correct. yay, but, you know, it's yay for them and the defense team. And it's a little bit, uh, a little bit of a uh, letdown. Now, Correct. the question, I kind of want to stop there for a moment. In cases like OJ and Casey and, you know, other cases where you don't get a conviction, it seems like they've kind of stopped the the process. Is that because there is a general belief amongst the public that a grave miscarriage of justice was occurred and they just say, hey, we got the person the first time and they're just defiant about it or – why does it seem like those cases stopped right there anyway? Well, the the reason when there is an acquittal at trial, everything ends, is because of the double jeopardy clause. Um, I believe in Europe, in some countries, they can continue trying you until they get the result they want. I believe that right. happened with Amanda Knox. And I believe it also happened with Oscar Pistorius in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And that was how it was in England at the time of the revolution. And so when our forefathers drafted the Constitution, they wanted to put an end to that. So they uh, came, you know, they, they created the Double Jeopardy Clause, which means you cannot be put at risk of life or liberty twice for the same crime. Right. But Lisa, what I meant was how come somebody else hasn't been, you know, convicted or brought to trial for the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson or Kaylee Anthony or somebody like that? Well, because the acquittal by the jury, as I said earlier, is not an exoneration. The evidence against Casey Anthony was sufficient. 
beyond a reasonable doubt for most people. Why it wasn't for that jury, I don't know. And the same with OJ. There is no, there was no other evidence or any avenues for either agency to pursue, even after the acquittal. But again, it doesn't mean they're innocent. And it doesn't, the jury's not saying that they're innocent. What the jury is saying in each of those cases is the prosecution did not prove their guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Right, right. Obviously, you know, one of those things that's kind of one of them awkward situations where, you know, the court of public opinion thinks that it's done, but, you know, afterwards it's one of them things where it's, you know, you can't do anything about it because a lot of people are going to believe that, you know, OJ or Casey did it till they got to their graves. Correct. Correct. And they're entitled to have that opinion. Uh, the general public does not in, uh, does not owe an accused a presumption of innocence stage in the process. I can read a newspaper article about a, a shooting at Mardi Gras, and I can look at the young men in the in the photograph. And I can say they did it, they're guilty. And I can believe that. And the only time that would be a problem is if I get a summons to jury duty at Orleans Parish Criminal Court. Right, because right. Because the only time an accused is entitled to, the only person an accused is entitled to a presumption of innocence from is a juror sitting in judgment of their case. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's say there is a conviction. The next, obviously, thing is post-trial motions. You know, obviously, the defendant's going to want a new trial, bail, so on and so forth. So go ahead and go into that. What happens directly after the jury trial? Okay. In, in some cases, and it's not every case, sometimes the day after the conviction, somebody comes forward and tells the defense attorneys, I have information about a juror or I have information about the prosecutor, I have information about a witness, and then the defense will file a motion for new trial based on that information and evidence. Absolutely, and yeah. And I the, mean, that's the first the thing they obviously want. It. Right, correct. Uh, it's, you know, it's the judge's discretion to grant it. Sometimes they're granted, sometimes they're not. If you follow the John Goodman case in Florida, I believe shortly after his appeal process began, information about a juror was presented in a motion for new new trial to the trial court. And the trial court vacated the guilty verdict and ordered a new trial. Right, right. Um, the John Goodman case is an interesting case, too, because that was a complicated legal uh, a complicated legal saga. He, uh, he was driving drunk. He struck a vehicle. The vehicle went into a canal. He drove his battered Bentley to a girlfriend's place, went in had a few drinks, and hours later said, oh, I wonder if I hurt anybody in that accident. And unfortunately, he killed a young man. Right. 
So uh, that was also out of Florida. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And so, go ahead. Uh, well, that's just basically, so he ended up getting a new trial because one of the jurors on his jury was going to write a book and told anybody who would listen during the trial about the book, basically. And I believe he got into some, he got into some criminal trouble of his own. So, and you were asking me about perjury charges earlier. They are somewhat rare, but they will happen. It it kind of depends on if it's not material to the case, a prosecutor isn't going to charge. But if it's material information about the case and they lie about it, then yes, the prosecutor will charge. My example of my ADHD. Michael? Are you there? We have silence. Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay, we're apparently having some technical difficulties. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and finish uh, talking about after conviction and post-trial motions. There's sentencing, which uh, if it's a death penalty case, it's a separate hearing. Witnesses can testify, bring in victim members to make victim impact statements. And then the judge or jury decides the sentence. And then the stage after that is the direct appeal. And that is where the errors, any errors that occurred during the trial are addressed to the appellate court. And the appellate court briefs from both sides, which are written arguments and, and law. And then they decide the whether or not the errors occurred, affected the trial, and whether or not a new proceeding is warranted. 
if they find the errors infected the trial and affected the outcome of the trial, then they'll vacate the conviction, reverse, and remand for a new trial. If they find that the errors occurred but did not infect the trial, were harmless, then they will affirm the conviction. At that point, the conviction becomes final. Uh, a cases you can file a writ to the U.S. Supreme Court to review, but that is discretionary, and they very rarely uh, examine state cases at that stage. It has to involve a very unique, very new con- or novel constitutional issue. You back, Michael? Yeah, I'm here. We had... I didn't know what was going on, and so we had death to a radio show, which was silence. Yeah, we had a little I did not real. I thought I was off. No, no, not at all, not at all. You were, uh, you were so, still on. <laughs> so next time I'll just keep talking to myself. <laughs> yeah, that may, <laughs> that, that may be a little bit better, but... Basically, yeah, I mean, we're pretty much getting into the bottom of this anyway, but uh, let's go ahead and speed through the rest of this. Uh, The direct appeal, obviously, you said uh, it can either be affirmed. Uh, Obviously, from there, they want to go to the Supreme Court, I'm assuming, or a state or federal court? Well, no, what happens is on direct appeal, you go to – you can – you have – if you have a novel constitutional issue in your case, you can go to the U.S. Supreme Court and see if they'll hear it and see if they'll grant you relief. But most of the time they don't hear it. So once that happens, then the conviction becomes final when the U.S. Supreme Court says, no, we're not going to hear this. Mm-hmm. Then you go into the post-conviction process. There is a state process which involves uh, a state, whatever state law. In Arkansas, it's Rule 37. In uh, Texas, it's a writ of habeas corpus. Uh, You file a claim with either the trial court or the state criminal court, uh, criminal appellate court. Again, these are harder to do because so many states have their own processes and different courts for different things, and and it's hard to generalize. But let's say in Arkansas, you file Mm -hmm. a Rule 37 claim in state court, in the trial court, and the person under the state law who reviews that claim is your original trial judge, if he's still on the bench. Right. The reasoning for that is the post-conviction, the state post-conviction process is not the avenue to litigate guilt or innocence or any of the issues raised and decided in the direct appeal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want, in state post-conviction, you're supposed to do constitutional claims either under state constitution or federal constitution. Occasionally, there will be new evidence on trial errors that you can bring in, but it's somewhat rare. And then 
the trial court renders a decision, you appeal that either to the criminal court, the criminal, the the court of appeal, Supreme Court. In death penalty cases, I believe it automatically goes to the Arkansas State Supreme Court. And another thing I didn't mention, in death penalty cases, direct appeal is automatic. In some Mm -hmm. criminal cases, direct appeal is discretionary. So, um, and then after you've gone through the state system, then you can present the issues to the federal court. You start in the district court, you go to the Court of Appeals, and then the U.S. Supreme Court. And again, if it's a novel constitutional issue, they will accept it. But if it's something that's been decided a million times before and all the circuits are agreeing, they generally won't take it. Right, right. Well, let's go ahead and we got about five minutes left. Let's go ahead and talk about some of these concepts and terms uh, that we okay. have. Let's start off with due process. Uh, what do uh, what does due process guarantee you? What's basically the definition of due process? Okay, hang on just a second, and I'm going to get that up. I... Uh, had something else up because I thought you'd start with the beginning. Okay. Or my list doesn't start at the beginning. Sorry. Okay. It is uh, You're fine. <laughs> legal fairness or legal safeguards, uh, basically legal protection from the deprivation of life or liberty. Mm-hmm. And those various aspects are guaranteed. Fifth Amendment, uh, right against self-incrimination, 14th Amendment, applying, I believe, all the all the amendments to the states. Fourth Amendment, freedom from unreasonable search and seizure. Uh, those are in the Bill of Rights. Uh, Sixth Amendment, right to counsel and right to the effective assistance of counsel. So those are, that's an, and it's a, like I said, it's the procedures to safeguard the individual against overreach by the government. Okay. Okay. What about burden of proof? What, you know, a lot of people get uh, burden of proof mixed up with a lot of things. Uh, What exactly does burden of proof entail? Burden of proof is the uh, level to which the, or it's the duty placed upon a party to prove or disprove a disputed fact. Uh, there are three levels. There is pre- uh, preponderance of the evidence, which is the more likely than not standard. And then there is clear and convincing evidence, which is uh, a slightly higher than more likely than not. I'm just going to wing it here. And then you have Mm -hmm. beyond a reasonable doubt, which is uh, evidence of a weight and character that would enable a person to make decision. And, you know, reasonable doubt, reasonable is kind of a, a fluffy term. 
it can mean different things to different people. But for the most part, it just means that you don't have a doubt as to the defendant's guilt. Um, if, you know, an unreasonable doubt could be a space alien could have come down and killed the victim. Right. A person who believes that would not be uh, reasonable. It's not... Exactly. It doesn't have to rise to a level that there is absolutely no doubt. It's a moral certainty that the defendant is guilty. Okay. And, um, and that's something that people do tend to confuse. They believe that if there's any doubt, there's reasonable doubt. Right. And that's not the case. Sometimes your doubt may not be reasonable. Um, for example, if, if something was established at trial with testimony and evidence, and then in discussing the case with someone, they come up with speculation about an alternate mm-hmm. scenario that could explain that piece of evidence, that's not reasonable. Right. Because there is no evidence in the trial that that scenario occurred. Or even say you're on a jury and you come up with an alternate scenario that mm-hmm. say the uh, a, an accused is linked to a victim because he possessed a necklace that belonged to the victim and had the victim's DNA on it. And the juror right. says, well, you know, hey, he could have bought that at a pawn shop. But there's no evidence that he ever bought the necklace at a pawn shop. And, in fact, he offered no evidence and no testimony to explain how that necklace came to be in his possession. Mm-hmm. Then there's no reasonable doubt. Right, absolutely, absolutely. How about preponderance of evidence? That is the, um, like I said, that's the lowest le- that is the lowest legal standard. It's generally applied in civil cases. Um, mm-hmm. And let me look up. Um, the greater weight of the evidence uh, in a civil lawsuit, that mm-hmm. the, the evidence weighs more in favor of one side rather than the other. And then clear and convincing is the more likely than not standard. Right. I right. I had a professor in paralegal in my paralegal classes that had a wonderful percentage explanation. Mm-hmm. But for the life of me, I can't remember what the percentages were. Okay. Okay. So how about percent? Presumption of innocence. About, with about a minute left, we got presumption of innocence to, cl- to finish this off here. Okay. Presumption of innocence is a duty owed by jurors in a criminal case within the confines of the courtroom to determine the guilt or innocence or the guilt of the, the accused based on only the evidence and testimony presented in the trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people think it's a broad right that every criminal accused is entitled to 
at all stages of the proceedings, but that mm-hmm. is not the case. Okay. Um, okay. So, uh, and it, it's not, I can decide somebody's guilty. You see, media will say suspect, will say accused, will say alleged, but that mm-hmm. is just their effort to avoid contaminating any jury pool. Right. It's not because they have to. Nothing really requires them to do that. And you see Nancy Grace. She yeah. certainly does not offer a presumption of innocence to anybody. So, but that's that's basically what that is. Right, right, absolutely. I apologize. That's <laughs> quite all right. You gotta love these technical difficulties, but for uh, Lisa, I think this has been a pretty successful first show. We're gonna come back next week and start looking at our cases after we did our introduction so to speak to clear and convincing here tonight but Lisa I think we're pretty much ready to cut it off I hope you have Wrap a great up. rest of your day and we are going to see you next week definitely I'll be here I okay, want to thank everyone for... <laughs> okay maybe we need to put the training wheels back on um... <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, uh, Lisa, are you, you ready, Michael? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes, uh, ma'am. Are you I'm ready? Here. Are you Are you yes, sitting ma'am. and you're listening? Are you listening to your phone? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I want to I want to thank everyone for listening to Clear and Convincing tonight with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like the show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook or at our blog at Clear and Convincing Podcast. WordPress.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann and join us next week for episode two, which is going to examine the case of Lizelle Lee. He was executed in 2017 by the state of Arkansas for the murder of Deborah Reese in 1993. And hopefully next week we'll have our technical difficulties ironed out and we'll be able to move along a little bit more smoothly than we did tonight. Thank you for joining us and come back next week. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Good night, everybody. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. 
Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.